presented by Onyx. Broadcasting from the Prairie Sportsman Studios. This week's show is brought to you by Ottertail Lakes Country. Go to ottertaillakescountry.com. Show off your pride for the outdoors with new gear from the Sporting Journal Radio store. Go to sportingjournalradio.com, click on store, and browse our selection of hoodies, hats, mugs, and more at sportingjournalradio.com. Well, if you're living somewhere in the reach of this show right here, at least the broadcast reach in Minnesota, Dakotas, Wisconsin, the Supper Midwest area, you're, you're well aware of the boundary waters and the proposed mining uh, that that uh, the mining operation that's been proposed up there, Twin Metals, and the dangers that that could pose for the watershed up there. Well, something similar is happening in Alaska. Uh, the pebble mine construction in Bristol Bay, Alaska. Uh, in 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 2008, there was an estimation that it was a, it was quite quite the ore deposit, maybe the second largest of its type in the in the world. The project would employ a lot of people. It would bring a big big economic impact to the area. Um, there's just a lot of things about this. You know, that it's always a tough thing when you talk about mining because if you it, it can provide a lot of jobs, but you wonder where the balance is to what the impact on the environment would be. And the issue in Alaska is what it'll do to that watershed. And all five Eastern Pacific salmon species spawn in Bristol Bay's freshwater tributaries. The bay is home to the world's largest commercial sockeye salmon fishery. This is a big deal. And uh, the EPA asked for Clean Water Act protection on parts of the bay in 2021, which would essentially block this mine project. And uh, that's what we're going to talk about today. Our guest is Scott Hayde. He's a sporting outreach director for businesses for Bristol Bay. And you can tell me a lot more about this project. I just know uh, kind of kind of what's going on up there. But I would like to get into the details a little bit and just talk about what impact this will have on on, on this fishery, because obviously this fishery is has a huge economic impact as well, not just for uh, the businesses there, but just for anglers, people that like to eat salmon, and of course, people that rely on it for, uh, you know, f- uh, for eating it every day, people that live there. Um, Scott, how, where are we at right now in the, in this project, and what, what are the odds of stopping it? Well, first of all, thanks for having me on the show to talk about a really important issue. Um, we are right now nearing the conclusion of uh, a long process that the EPA has undertaken with the Clean Water Act that would protect uh, the Bristol Bay region, a, a segment of the Bristol Bay region, which, uh, as you noted, is a pretty big and important uh, wild salmon fishery. Uh, I'll just give you a quick backstory on where Bristol Bay is. The Bristol Bay region is uh, in southwest Alaska, roughly 200 miles southwest of Anchorage, and it's remote. You can only get there by flying or uh, or by by water. And in this region, uh, you have got a number of major salmon-producing watersheds, and this area is responsible for about half the global supply of wild sockeye salmon. Wow. That, sound, that, that, that sounds pretty big, and indeed it is. Um, over the last uh, 10 years, I think the average return is upwards of 40 million fish, but that average each year is moving up because for the last several years, Bristol Bay has set uh, records for the overall sockeye return. Last year in 2021, the uh, sockeye return was 66 million fish, and that's 
an absolutely enormous amount of, uh, of, of protein. You know, like I said, over half the world's supply of wild, wild sockeye salmon comes from Bristol Bay. So you can go to, you know, Cub Foods, you can go to Hy-Vee markets, you know, some of the big chains in the Midwest, and you will find wild Bristol Bay sockeye salmon in their seafood areas. So um, this year, the numbers are even more staggering. This year, as of July 31st, when I believe Alaska Department of Fish and Game kind of stopped counting, they were at 78 million plus sockeye salmon came back to Bristol Bay. So this is a fishery that is unprecedented. It's, it's unmatched on planet Earth. And it's a fishery that has been so well managed and has such productive habitat that they have been commercial fishing this area for 130 plus years. Uh, sport fishing has gone on there for half a century. And uh, before any of those, uh, the native folks of the region have been depending upon these runs of salmon for you know, millennia for their, for, for their entire existence. So the fishery is estimated to be worth $2.2 billion every single year, and it employs 15,000 people mm. in that fishery. So it's both an amazing ecological resource um, as well as an economic powerhouse. Yeah. So, I mean, that's usually the big argument for some of these mines is what it's going to do economically for the region. But uh, it sounds like that fishery is a bigger benefit economically there, obviously. Well, most people do tend to agree with that. And the the overwhelming sentiment in the region, you know, the folks who've been promised heaven and earth uh, for if you let us build this mine, this is what it'll do for you. The overwhelming sentiment in the region is and has been for 15, 20 years, no thanks. We are just fine with the way things are right now. We don't want to risk what we have for the potential uh, that this mine could possibly bring someday. So, uh, you know, the region sentiment is extremely uh, against building the mine and in favor of protecting the fishery. And in Alaska, a state which is generally pretty favorable toward resource development projects, uh, even statewide, the majority of people uh, don't think that the pebble mine in Bristol Bay is worth the risk. So it's pretty much an outlier when you talk about Alaska big conservation battles. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's why most people live in Alaska, right? To be able to live off the land a little bit and enjoy it. And anytime there's a risk to their way of life, they're not going to like it. And, and talk about that risk just a little bit. Like what, why, what does this mine do and what is the potential danger from this mine to the, to the fishery? Okay. Well, for starters, we've already touched on, this is a remote region. There are very few roads in the region. Um, you have to fly to get out there. Uh, the, construct, the, the construction of the mine would entail an enormous amount of infrastructure for starters. You're talking a deep water port on Cook Inlet where the, uh, where the mine would bring their product to. Uh, you would have to have a pipeline from there that would go um, around or across Lake Iliamna, which is the biggest freshwater lake in Alaska, out to the mine site, which is on the north side of Lake Iliamna. So um, you would have a road corridor that would have to get punched through um, all the way out to the site. 
it would require a power plant. And this is pretty, this is pretty unbelievable. You'd, you, they'd need a power plant. And the one that they're proposing would be large enough to power more than the city of Fairbanks, Alaska, which is the second biggest city in Alaska. Wow. So all of that infrastructure is number one. And those, the roads and everything, you're crossing dozens and dozens and dozens of rivers and streams that, that support this enormous salmon resource. You know, salmon are anadromous fish. They go to the ocean, they come back a few years and they return to the stream that they, uh, that they respond in. So those are the risks just for starters. Um, the mine itself, the company has proposed uh, what what we like to refer to as kind of like a starter mine. Um, the, the, the deposit we've touched on is pretty darn large, but they are proposing, hey, let's just build a little mine right now to start with. And then uh, they feel it's probably easier to get a small mine permitted than a large one. And once, if they were ever able to, get that permitted and into operation, then of course, they're not going to stop with the small mine. They will keep going till they develop the full extent of that, of that deposit. And estimates are, if that deposit were fully developed, you're talking about 11 billion tons of mine waste that will have to be stored in perpetuity. And another way to say that is that has to be stored until the sun burns out. Hmm. I mean, you're talking this, this deposit, while it is quite large, while it is very large, is extremely low grade. It is very low grade in the valuable minerals. It's very high grade in sulfide. So to extract the valuable minerals from the waste, which is going to be, you know, 97, 98% plus is going to have to remain there on site. And it's such high sulfide content that exposed to air and water, that's going to create basically it's acid mine drainage, roughly equivalent of sulfuric acid. So you've got that. Their proposal is to build enormous tailings ponds behind enormous dams. We're talking miles long, the dams, 700 feet high and storing 11 billion tons of mine waste forever in an area that, oh, by the way, is very seismically active. Yeah. Now, I don't think anyone goes into a project, you know, thinking, hey, we're going to mess this up. No, there's no doubt that they think they can do it. I think that's just just about the highest level of hubris to really think you can control things like this. You know, I just look back and you've got a few factors that can cause things to go wrong. One is a natural disaster. That's like the Fukushima power plant over in, uh, over in Japan, um, the earthquake and the, and the resulting tsunami caused that big problem. And I just said that we're dealing with an area in Alaska that's very earthquake prone. Um, and then the second is human error. Um, you know, despite the best engineering, despite the best intentions, you can't, you know, engineer your way out of every single risk. And the, the, the human error thing is like, look at the uh, deep water horizon and what, ha- what that did in the Gulf of Mexico. So um, I think most people look at this and they say, yeah, you know, the mine would be very large and it could bring some benefits to a limited number of people for a limited period of time. But what exists there today has supported the residents of the region for millennia, has supported a thriving commercial fishery that's not dwindling. It's in fact, you know, blowing records out of the water the last couple of years. And also um, to touch on, you know, something I think that this audience would like to hear about. I mean, it is 
God's honest truth, one of the finest bucket list sporting destinations on planet Earth. Yeah. I mean, it's it, it, it's unreal. Alaska is pretty incredible sportsman's paradise. But I think even if you look at uh, look at Alaska and talk to folks who have been to different places, Bristol Bay, Southwest Alaska is widely regarded as the best of the best. Well, Alaska is number one on my bucket list. I haven't been up there yet and uh, I'm, I'm anxious and it's it's almost like I'd want to do it, just go up for about a year just so I can experience all the things I keep hearing about with all the opportunity that's up there. Um, so I want to just back up a little minute, a little bit and talk about some of those numbers that you brought up. So yeah, you, you mentioned that there is a lot of metal there. So we're talking about copper and gold, right? As a mineral, the what they're trying to mine up there. But 90 8% of what they'll mine will be waste. I mean, that's so the percentage of that of copper and gold that they're going to be the stuff that they're pulling out of the ground, what they're looking for is a very small part. And then everything yes. else, 98% plus of what they're going to pull out, they have to store forever. That That is true. It is a very large deposit, but is extremely low grade. Hmm. Yep. And 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 that is so and when it when you when talk about how they store like how are they planning to store it it's uh it's ponds basically tailings ponds yeah enormous tailings ponds lakes lagoons whatever you want to refer to it like i said the the dams that they're going to create to hold the hold this stuff back i mean literally the plans are like 700 feet tall and several miles long wow. i mean it's it's and how would you like that hanging over the biggest salmon runs on earth? Yeah, well, and, and hasn't there been something with uh, migratory birds that have landed in ponds like that as well? Hasn't there been issues with that? <laughs> yeah, I think you're probably referring to the Berkeley pit in Butte, Montana, where uh, they, they employ people, I think, these days to scare off the waterfowl that think they're going to take a break and land in that pit because once they land in there, they usually don't make it out. They all die. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I mean, copper and gold, obviously people are always looking for copper and gold and for one, because it's valuable, uh, the copper, what, where would that, you know, what would they be doing with this? Where, where would the copper end up? Yeah, there's nothing that says, uh, that they have to have it processed and used in the United States of America. You know, resources like this are sold into the global market. So you can't say with hundred percent certainty, but there's, you know, pretty high likelihood given the location and, you know, ease of shipping in the Pacific, you know, who knows? I mean, is that stuff going to be bound for, you know, Asia, China? Mm -hmm. Potentially not America, of course. Yet we'd, yeah, we'd I mean, there's, there's, there's nothing that says, you know, that they have to, if you take it out of America, you have to, you know, keep it in America. So this, this company is a Canadian company. And then there's been other investors that have walked away from this project. Yeah, the, the backers of, uh, of the Pebble Project is called the Pebble Limited Partnership, and they're a subsidiary of Hunter Dickinson, which is based out of Canada. Um, but over the years, they have had uh, financial partners who have you know, assisted with uh, exploration costs and, and other operating costs. But over the course of time, some of the biggest mining companies on earth have been involved, but no longer are. The ones that have walked away include Mitsubishi, 
um, a company called Anglo-American, which is one of the biggest mining companies in the world, uh, Rio Tinto. So these companies, some to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars invested in this project, you know, for one reason or another, decided, hey, we probably have more viable prospects that we can put our money toward in other places in the world um, that aren't going to face the problems that developing the Pebble Mine uh, is going to face. And all of those companies that I just mentioned no longer are part of the part of the pro- part of the project. Um, they've just cut their losses. How is this still a thing? I mean, when you have people like that backing out all the time, and then obviously this has been going on for a number of years now, a lot of opposition, a lot of local opposition to it. I'm, I'm just surprised that they're still trying to build the thing. Now, I want to bring up uh, a date that's coming up very close because right now the public, so anybody watching this or listening to this, they can comment and say, hey, don't, do not build this mine, correct? That, that, is, that is correct. Um, right now, um, we talked a little bit about the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, um, is engaged in a process under the Clean Water Act that could see uh, two of the major river systems in Bristol Bay, two of which whose headwaters originate in the area of the pebble deposit, uh, could see these, these waters receive a much higher level of protection. Um, it's a very rarely used part of the Clean Water Act. Uh, the Clean Water Act has been law of the land since the 1970s. Mm-hmm. And under the Clean Water Act, uh, when, a, when a company wants to build a project like this that's going to have impacts toward water, um, the Army Corps of Engineers gets involved to review uh, what's called a Section 404 permit. And this could be anything from, you know, a small road project up to and including what we're talking about here, the Pebble Mine. You know, and the Army Corps looks at tens of thousands of these permit applications on an annual basis. And the EPA has oversight authority where in certain very rare instances, um, this being one of them, they take a look at a project and say, you know what, what's being proposed here is certainly going to cause significant adverse impacts to the water resources and all that those water resources uh, support. So for that reason, EPA does have oversight authority and uh, veto authority on this permit. So the process that's going on right now, uh, the EPA is taking public comments until September 6th. And what they're proposing are a set of prohibitions um, on mine waste disposal in the immediate area of the pebble deposit, and also a series of restrictions um, in a broader geographic area that would uh, place some pretty severe restrictions on what sort of impacts could happen to uh, flowing water, to wetlands, lakes, and ponds, and uh, to, to stream flow um, as far as you know, reduction in, you know, in the stream flow levels um, on, a, on a broader set of waters in Bristol Bay. So we're hopeful this process has been going on uh, for quite a long time. Um, in, in 2010, locals in the region uh, tribes in the region as well as uh, commercial fishermen sport fishing operators uh, was led by the tribal interests in the region petitioned the epa to get involved in using this part of the clean water act and as i said it's pretty rarely used as as i noted tens of thousands of uh, permit applications are reviewed by the army corps every year in the history of the clean water act what's being proposed in bristol bay uh, is is something that the EPA has only done 13 times. 
Mm. So they only use it in the most extreme and the most rare of instances. And when you're talking about the resources that exist in Bristol Bay and the threat posed to those resources by something like Pebble, um, I think it's pretty clear most people agree that if you're going to use this tool anywhere, and it's a very surgical laser focused tool, if you're going to use it anywhere, this is a pretty good place to do so. Um, so the public can comment until uh, the 6th of September on these proposed restrictions. And the, uh, the, the website is stoppebblemine.org. Oh, you've got it right on the screen. Perfect. Um, so we, we have garnered support from folks all across the country. There's been a number of these public comment periods over the years. Um, like I said, the Army Corps or the, the EPA was petitioned back in 2010, and they undertook a process uh, from like 2014 to 2016, and that got delayed by litigation. The mining company sued uh, the federal government to, to halt this thing. And uh, we've, we've, we've emerged from the litigation uh, slowdown, and now EPA, we're hoping they'll finish the job. And uh, this is the final opportunity for folks to comment. Over the years, we have had cumulatively millions of individuals who care about places like Alaska, who care about salmon, whether it's, you know, I love the taste and the, and, and the nutrition that wild salmon provides when I feed it to my family, to folks who love to go to Bristol Bay and, uh, you know, catch fish commercially. It's, it's thousands of small business owners basically is what you've got. All those permit holders, they're a lot are from Alaska, a lot are from the Pacific Northwest, but you know, there's folks from Minnesota who have permits to fish up there. There's folks from you know, Montana, folks from Pennsylvania, folks from pretty much all over the country um, have direct jobs fishing in that commercial fishery. And then you've got, you know, the lodges and, and outfitter camps and those employ guides from all across the country as well. Um, that's obviously a more seasonal operation, but uh, it's it's something that whether you you know dream of going to Alaska someday or you uh, or you've been there before and you can't wait to go back, you know Bristol Bay is there. You go be, be, best of the best. There's not too many places where you can uh, you know <laughs> be be tight be tight with a 28 inch rainbow trout with brown bears in the river looking for salmon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a wild place, man, and it needs to be protected and our waters need to be protected. And that's one thing we've we've really tried to to push hard here with, with our show is just how important keeping water clean and water conservation is uh, everywhere. You know, it's kind of the lifeblood of our planet and we need to protect it and not just for, uh, you know, people who like to fish and the wildlife, but just for for clean drinking water and and uh, healthy living across our planet so it's important to protect these places and and this project of course sounds familiar because a lot of people here back in minnesota know about this mine project up in the in the boundary waters and the boundary waters is still one of my favorite places on the planet and even even when the argument comes up every year about building cell phone towers up there or you you know allowing more motor motors to be used in different parts it, and as, as nice it is to have a motor in some of those places i'm glad that there isn't you know you got to keep these places wild and clean and uh and protect them forever because if 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 not, they're all going to get destroyed. And then you're just not going to have places like this anymore. And you know a little bit about the boundary waters. You're from Minnesota, right, originally? Indeed. I grew up in uh, Gaylord, Minnesota, down by Mankato, went to school at St. Olaf in Northfield. So I uh, spent the first 21, 22 years of my life uh, living in Minnesota. Still uh, 
bang my head against the wall every year, follow the Vikings. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> and, uh, and after Minnesota, I lived in South Dakota for, uh, you know, till I was just about 50. So, um, that no, seems like a natural waters is a place that is, I was just going to say that's a natural transition going from Minnesota to South Dakota. That's a, that's, that's, uh, that's normal. I think. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think, I think there's, I think there's a pretty good, uh, you know, crossing of people going either direction in that equation. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I loved, I loved South Dakota. I loved pheasant hunt and everything like that. So, uh, I was good, good time living there. My little brother actually is a pharmacist over in South Dakota in Aberdeen up in the Northeast part of the state. And, Quick, quick, tiny story on him. He went to school to be a pharmacist and uh, to finish his school, he had his choice of the University of Minnesota or South Dakota State University. And he honest to God weighed it by saying, oh, downtown Twin Cities or biggest flyway in Central America, yes. in, in, uh, nor- in biggest flyway in North America, plus really good fishing. <laughs> I think I'm going to go to Brookings. <laughs> that's, that's, that's smart. That is a smart move right there. <laughs> I would, I would say the same thing, make the same decision. Yeah. But, uh, uh, but back, but back to the boundary waters, you, yeah. you, you brought that up and I totally sidetracked it. Sorry, man. I hijacked that. Um, no, my, my family, they took us to the, they took me and my brother to the boundary waters every single summer, you know, sometimes more than once went up there a couple of times to Ely in the winter. Uh, I was probably about 10 years old and the lodge owner said, Hey, you want to go on a sled dog ride? And oh, sweet. I'm like, I'm like, yeah, sure. So I rode in the sled. And Bob, the lodge owner, you know, took the dogs out and we went whipping through these through these roads and trails in the woods. And like a day later, he thought, oh, this kid knows what he's doing. Hey, Scott, do you want to take the dogs out? I'm like, <laughs> uh, I just I just rode along yesterday. Bob. He said, that's fine. They know the trail. They'll they'll just go right where they're supposed to go. Yeah. OK, so 10 year old Scott thinks, oh, he thinks I can do it. Let's do it. So get across the, get across the, the county road. And we are off into the woods and we were maybe two turns into this thing and I'm off laying in the snow and the dogs just kept going. <laughs> and, 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 and I thought, Oh God, are they going to get the sled and the ropes, you know, all tangled around some trees. So I walked the whole route oh only to get back, only to get back to the lodge. Everybody's wondering where Scott was because the dogs have been back for a long time. <laughs> That's funny. That was my that was that was my last sled dogging experience. <laughs> you should do it again. Uh, it's uh, I I got you know I I didn't quite have that situation. I've done it twice now. We filmed a couple TV shows up there around Ely and and did it uh, went fishing by sled dog, which was a lot of fun. And um, the second and time for we lake went trout. Up for lake trout, yeah. Well, the first time was for stream trout for brookies and and splake, and then uh, the second and rainbows, and then the second time we went for lakers on on. Uh, uh, Burnside. And when we got done, I was with, we had, I think we had three, three teams of sled dogs out there. And, uh, I, so I had my, I was on my own, but basically I was in the middle and I just, the dogs just followed the trail like that and followed the guys in front. So for the most part, I was all right. So I was getting kind of cocky, like I'm pretty good at this dog sled thing. I know what I'm doing. And he's like, one of the guys is like, well, do you want to take the fun trail back? I was like, yeah, let's go. So we were going through the woods and pretty soon we were cooking and we were going around turns and bends like this. And pretty soon I was up like, at one point the sled was up in the air and came down and, and then I 
was going around a corner like this and I just couldn't hang on anymore. And I bailed and the dogs just kept, just kept right on trucking and uh, they caught up to the next sled. And then the guy running that one had to, had to run his and then jump into the other one and kind of fall into the other one and stop them both at the same time. Got it. Got most of it on camera. Cause the GoPros, I had GoPros on the sled and they kept going while I was still laying face down in the, in the snow back in the woods. So it was, uh, it was quite a, an experience and we had pretty good fishing up there too. So it was, it was pretty neat, you know, and that, uh, and, and then, so you, you've obviously spent a lot of time in the boundary waters and, uh, and, and kind of know, what it means to protect that area as well. No, absolutely. I mean, you think the Boundary Waters, you think Bristol Bay, you think places like, you know, Yellowstone, the Grand Canyon. I mean, all of these are iconic places in America, iconic landscapes, um, amazing public lands. And the more we move into the future, you know, the seemingly fewer of those places there are in the world, yeah. which means those that which means those that remain uh, are that much more valuable. So you know, Boundary Waters is the you know most heavily visited wilderness area in the in the country. So uh, it, it makes complete sense. And there's a lot of strong economic regions for protecting the Boundary Waters as well. Um, the tourism industry in Ely and on the Gunflint Trail and stuff like that, certainly. And there's folks who um, have chosen to make their homes in northeastern Minnesota because of the quality of life that uh, that it, that it gives them, and the fact that you can you know work remotely from a lot of places these days. I mean, places like that are going to be very attractive. So, yeah, I mean, I, we went to Basswood, we went to Gabro, mm -hmm. uh, all all those all those lakes. I mean, some of them are real close to where that Twin Metals mine is is proposed. So. That one hits. That one hits close to home. When you you know you hear people, particularly up on the you know on the range up in northern Minnesota, they know mining is a big part of the culture there, and it's mm -hmm. been a big part of uh, industry and and you know the the economy, and it obviously provides a lot of jobs, provides gives those people a, a way of life up there. But at, you know at, at at what risk? Obviously, with some of these mines, it's just not worth it. And and when you look at pebble mine in Alaska. And you talk about, well, it's going to provide all these jobs. Well, you can shoot that down right away when you talk about 15,000 jobs in the fishery. And that's a, that, those are, that's a, a sustainable economy. That's a sustainable, it's healthy for, for the planet. It's healthy for the fishery. It's providing a lot of jobs. It's a huge economic impact. So to me, it's a no brainer to, you know, that you can't, you can't tell me that, that this mine is going to provide, you know, that the, the job argument is a better one than what's already there. Yeah, I mean, I just think back. Uh, Alaska has a has a former U.S. senator, um, the late Ted Stevens, hmm. and Senator Stevens was an ardent pro resource development uh, politician. And Senator Stevens, you know, he came out after looking at the Pebble, you know, proposals. He came out and just said, you know what, this is the wrong mine in the wrong place. Um, it's certainly something that could be beneficial, but the location is horrible for, for something like this. A former governor of Alaska, a guy named Jay Hammond, he actually uh, supposedly said that the only worst place that he could think of building the Pebble Mine would be in his living room. So, um, like I said, like I said, yeah, look at that. I mean, look at that. That's, you know, they call them leopard rainbows. They're, they're, they're so spotted. I mean, they have spots on their eyes for crying out loud. Um, those fish 
in Bristol Bay, I, I talked before when that picture of the bear was up there about, oh yeah, you can like be in a river with bears and you're tight to a 28, 28 inch rainbow trout. You know, you're going to catch that and you know, your guide will net it and you're going to be like, oh my God, that's the fish of my life. And your guide will have no qualms breaking your heart by telling you, yeah, that's a pretty nice fish, but it takes 30 to be a trophy here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. that's, that's how, that, that's how good it is. I mean, one of the first times, um, actually the first time that I took my wife, uh, on a trip and we went to Bristol Bay, um, back in the early days of, uh, of doing what I do, I would spend the winter months, you know, sports show season. I would spend the winter months traveling the country from coast to coast. And every weekend I was somewhere else from Thursday through, you know, I'd come home on Monday and you know get some clean clothes in the suitcase and take off again to go to the next show i got to play i like to say i got to play johnny appleseed running around pebble mine and that's up to bristol bay and we did a fly out and our guide happened to be a young guy from uh from minnesota he's a he's a musky guide up uh, around uh up around leach and malax and he was our guide on a flyout trip down the Alaska Peninsula. And that day we caught a mess of king salmon, Chinooks, and every fish that Nikki caught was larger than any fish she had ever caught in her life prior to that day. Hmm. And for many years, the screensaver on my computer was Adam, our guide, holding this you know close to 40 pound king salmon and Nikki standing next to him with this huge, huge smile on her face. And we got to the end of the day and she said, you know, when you're gone in the winter, all those, all those days and weeks, you know, it really does suck. It's not very easy. She said, but now that I've been here just once, I get it. This place is unreal. So, yeah. I mean, that's the kind, that's the kind of experience that people have. That's the kind of experience that Bristol Bay provides, you know, just on the sporting side of things. And then you talk about everything else we that we discussed about what else it supports. And it is, as you already said, it's a it's a no brainer. It's hard to believe that so many people have had to work so hard for so long for something that seems so completely obvious. But here we are and we're getting, we believe, hopefully close to the end. And if we can get the EPA to finish these Clean Water Act protections, um, then we will secure lasting and durable protections for at least a certain part of Bristol Bay and in the future we'll look at, you know, options to expand those protections. So, and that's, you know, potential legislation down the line, but big focus right getting the EPA to finish the job. So that's what we're commenting right now is we're basically telling the EPA, yes, we want you to keep working on this. We, we want to, you to finish this process, provide the protection that uh, can provide, and they have every opportunity to do this. And we're hopeful that by the end of 2022 or sometime early in 2023, we can get it done. 
All right. Very good. There's a website, stoppebblemindnow.org. Uh, we'll, we'll link it on our, on our website and on our social media too. Or if you're watching this, we'll put it down in the comments below. Uh, Scott Hayes, Sporting Outreach Director for Businesses for Bristol Bay. Uh, keep up the good work and uh, thanks for explaining the situation and giving us some time here on the show today. Well, thank you for having me. And before I sign off, I am going to say, you know, thanks to everyone across the country who has taken time out of their life to, you know, send a comment over the years because they truly all do matter. We need you one more time before September 6th. And I also want to give a big shout out to uh, the sporting industry. I mean, it's been amazing to work with brands from the fishing side to the hunting side. I mean, I like to say I've got everybody from like fly rods to firearms on our side of saying, you know, let, let's protect Bristol Bay because, you know, on top of the fishing, it's a pretty darn good spot to, you know, chase caribou and moose and brown bear. Well, if you like the outdoors, this is a cause to get behind. Absolutely. And, uh, so let's get it stopped. September 6th is that deadline to put the comment in. And then you think uh, we could we could hear something about uh, what the EPA is going to do by the end of the year, early next year? Yeah, that's the timeline that we are uh, asking the EPA to act on. I mean, it's gone on far too long and they can they can do it in that timeline. We just have to prod them, I think. So let me ask you this, then, if they if they do what are, what are we asking them to do? They would, they would continue to push for protections. Is it what, is there more than what they've already talked about? And then would they, what would that do? Would that essentially shut this down? Would they try to mine somewhere else you think, or would that just completely end the conversation? Yeah. The, the proposed restrictions that are on the table right now that people are commenting on would go a very long way to ensuring that these waters are protected and the pebble mine would not be able to be built. So that's what we're, that, that's what we're dealing with. I mean, once September 6th rolls around, that's the end of public comment period. The EPA will compile all those comments, look at other uh, stuff that they have learned over the last several months, and then come out with their final proposal. StopPebbleMindNow.org. Uh, Scott, thanks a lot. If there's uh, any other any other messages you want us to help try to spread the word about, let me know. Thank you very much for having me. This has been the Finding Fins Fishing Podcast, part of the Sporting Journal Radio family. Subscribe wherever you get podcasts or go to FindingFins.com and make sure to like our sponsors. Looking for winter adventure? Might as well pick a place with over 1,000 lakes. Ottertail County, Minnesota is in the middle of everywhere, offers a simpler pace, and has something for everyone. Find your inner otter at ottertaillakescountry.com.